Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. All right, last week we talked about the rise of grunge in 1991, the year Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and bands like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Stone Temple Pilots would change the face of popular music, quite possibly for the last time in history. However, grunge was still making its ascension in 1991. This year marked the beginning of the implosion of the hairband movement, but heavy metal was still by far the most popular form of rock. Metallica and Guns N' Roses were very much at the height of their powers in 1991, Metallica having released their Black record in August of 91, and Guns N' Roses putting out the Illusions record a month later in September. Def Leppard is kind of an outlier here because they released Hysteria follow-up Adrenalize in early 1992, and it went multi-platinum, and some people associate them with the hair metal movement. I never did myself. When Def Leppard started out, they were kind of an ACDC that was okay for girls to listen to. But as the 80s wore on and their association with Mutt Lang took hold, Mutt having told the band that his vision for Hysteria would be a hard rock version of Michael Jackson's Thriller, it was easy for people to lump Def Leppard in with the hair band crowd. So we're going to talk about how Metallica and Guns N' Roses were able to fend off the rise of grunge in 1991. And I also want to talk about something else that happened that year that was extremely important that being the death of Freddie Mercury. But before we really dig deep into those topics, I want to touch on a few other things that happened in 1991 that need to be mentioned in the areas of country, pop, and some other stuff. Music festival Lollapalooza was conceived in 1991 by Perry Farrell as a farewell celebration for his band Jane's Addiction. The bands on the bill were mostly in the alternative metal punk, and hip-hop vein, but also featured a lot of non-musical countercultural content, like political presentations, freak shows, and even areas you could go to smash TVs. Lollapalooza and alternative rock grew and gained power together. The 1992 and 1993 lineups were mostly grunge and alternative bands, with the odd hip-hop act thrown in. Nirvana was set to headline the festival the following year in 1994, but the band dropped out of the festival on April 7th. Kurt Cobain's body was discovered in Seattle the next day. Farrell had continued to oversee the festival until 1996, when he started working on another festival project called ENIT. That same year, Metallica was added to the Lollapalooza bill. And this caused some controversy because up until then, the focus was to feature only non-mainstream bands in trying to give equal attention to all of the artists on the bill. Apparently, when Farrell found out, he was not at all happy with the fact that Metallica would be participating because he didn't care much for their macho image, and he felt that it ran counter to what he was trying to achieve with Lollapalooza. Farrell would walk away from the festival as a result. The 1997 version of the tour was a disaster. They booked acts like Waylon Jennings, and by the following year, Lollapalooza was cancelled. In 2003, Farrell got Jane's Addiction back together and organized a brand new Lollapalooza tour. But because ticket prices were so high, the tour wasn't considered a success. But in the years to follow, Lollapalooza has existed in some form or another to this day. Some of the notable albums that were released in 1991 were R.E.M.'s Out of Time, The Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Smashing Pumpkins' debut record Gish, and U2's Octune Baby, which marked a significant change in direction for the band after their previous record Rattle and Hum was criticized heavily for being pretentious. 
This caused a lot of infighting in the band over musical direction and song quality. Members of the band admitted that they weren't really ready for the fame that they achieved with Joshua Tree, and they were pretty insecure about their abilities as songwriters. They got tired of playing their greatest hits live, and they really kind of lost their way. Around this time in late 1990, the Madchester scene was also starting to emerge in Britain, which launched bands like Happy Mondays, The Charlatans, and Stone Roses. And apparently this really confused and frustrated Bono, and made him feel like there might not be a place for you two in the 90s. The intent of Octune Baby was to incorporate a darker, more alternative sound into their music, and the band brought back Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno to produce the record. Brian Eno was half-jokingly told that his main role, however, was to erase anything that sounded like U2. The initial sessions were a disaster, and the band actually almost broke up during the Octune sessions. Bono and The Edge had started to go off and write songs on their own, without bassist Adam Clayton and drummer Larry Mullen Jr., and this resulted in bad blood within the band. At the time, The Edge was listening to electronic stuff, like The Young Gods and Nine Inch Nails, causing the classic rock-loving Mullen to consider whether or not his drum parts would be marginalized on the new record. A lot of material was scrapped, fistfights almost broke out among band members and producers, and things were pretty dire until one night, Edge was working on a new song, Mysterious Ways. He started to play this chord progression over and over again at the suggestion of Lanois. And as he did that, the band became inspired, paying more attention to it, and started to contribute ideas to this progression. And the result of this was the song, One. This moment apparently went a long way towards instilling a new level of confidence in the band and their ability to work with each other. After its release, Octune Baby was regarded as U2's finest work. I'm a Joshua Tree guy myself, but that's just me. Another big record in 1991 was Rope in the Wind by Garth Brooks, the first country record to debut at number one on the Billboard 200. Here are some facts that may surprise you. Garth Brooks has sold 170 million albums worldwide, more than Elvis Presley, and just behind the Beatles in total album sales overall. Brooks kickstarted that pop-infused new country movement that we saw later on in the 90s with people like Shania Twain, Alan Jackson, Faith Hill, uh, Travis Tritt, Brooks and Dunn, and also Reba McIntyre, who was at the center of a very awful tragedy in 1991. While she was touring her Rumor Has It album, McIntyre chartered two planes. On March 16, 1991, just after midnight, one of them crashed into the side of a mountain 10 miles east of the airport, killing everybody on board. While eight members of her band were on that plane, she was not. Another very tragic loss in 1991 was that of Farouk Balsera, otherwise known as Queen singer Freddie Mercury, lost to complications related to AIDS at 45 years of age. Mercury was recognized as one of the greatest singers in all of rock, to the extent that a study was actually completed by a team of researchers to examine the appeal of Mercury's voice. The team identified a vocal range of F-sharp 2 to G5, which is just over three octaves not quite the four-octave range that was previously believed. This research team even went so far as to use an endoscopic video camera to study the throat of a rock singer imitating Mercury's singing voice. 
Mercury was also a gifted instrumentalist and composer, probably best known for writing across multiple genres, including rockabilly, metal, classical, gospel, and disco. He tended to write stuff that was very complex musically. For example, Bohemian Rhapsody doesn't follow a cyclical format in the same way that a typical song might. It uses a number of chords, but none of them ever repeat. Now, having said that, he also wrote simple songs with very few chords, stuff like Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Mercury wrote most of his songs on the piano and claimed that he could barely read music. A few years before his death, rumors began to circulate about his health. Mercury denied being ill and claimed he tested negative for AIDS, although his partner Jim Hutton would later claim he was diagnosed with AIDS in April 1987. The rumors continued, though, mostly because of Mercury looking more and more gaunt. By 1990, everybody was speculating, and he was being stalked regularly by photographers. Mercury continually denied the stories, however. Queen guitarist Brian May later confirmed that Mercury had broken the news to the band much, much earlier. May also said that Mercury was fearless, asking for the band to write him more and more material, and that they could finish it after he was gone and that rather than being sad in the studio, Mercury laughed often and seemed happy. Mercury would soon retreat to his home in London, surrounded by his inner circle, choosing to refuse medication in order to quicken his passing. On November 22, 1991, Mercury released a public statement confirming that he did in fact test positive for AIDS and was indeed HIV positive. Two days later, on the night of November 24th, Mercury died of bronchial pneumonia resulting from AIDS. In accordance with his request, Mercury was cremated, asking for his remains to be buried in a secret location, never ever to be revealed. Freddie Mercury's life was celebrated around the world, and in April of 1992, the Freddie Mercury tribute concert for AIDS awareness was held at Wembley Stadium in London featuring members of two of the biggest rock bands from 1991, Metallica and Guns N' Roses. Metallica's Black Album, released in August of 1991, was certainly a defining moment for the band. It was also a defining moment for me as a fan from the very beginning. I can still remember very vividly standing in a record store in a mall somewhere in South Carolina in the summer of 1983, holding Metallica's first record, Kill Em All, in my hands, staring at the cassette and wondering what this record could possibly sound like. And I would find out, just a short while later, compliments of my yellow Sony sports Walkman. That record changed things in my mind. It introduced me to real heavy metal. And from that moment, back in 1983, Metallica was almost like my dirty little secret. Nobody else knew about them where I grew up in Northern Ontario. Over the years, I would watch them grow and progress with each new record. Ride the Lightning in 84, Master of Puppets in 86, and then the incredible Garage Days EP, with which Metallica completely left all of their peers in the dust. And Justice for All was great, but things were changing. And they had to. In a period like the 80s, not even Metallica could sustain the position that they had achieved. And so, then in 1981, Metallica bid me farewell with their Black Album. 
And I don't blame them a bit, and I'm not resentful in the least. I was happy for them, actually. Even if it was weird to see other people, people you'd never expect to be Metallica fans, sing along with songs like The Unforgiven. But for the band to release a record like the Black Album is just inevitable. It had to happen. And if anything, I admire them for taking as long as they did to do it. It all started with Metallica bringing in producer Bob Rock. He had recently produced Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood record, so right away you knew that something was up and there was going to be a change in direction. The band admitted they wanted to write shorter songs after having done four albums of long, complex compositions. They said they were tired of trying to prove that they were competent musicians by playing intricate stuff all the time. Lars Ulrich, Metallica's drummer, even admitted he changed his playing style to a more ACDC, Rolling Stones type of vibe to simplify things. Despite the flexibility, there was a lot of arguing over song quality and musical direction between Bob Rock and the band, with Rock criticizing Hetfield's lyrics, insisting that the band do millions of takes of everything. The album was mixed three times, and during the making of the album, three of the four band members would divorce their wives. But Metallica, which is actually the formal name of the record, even though people call it the Black Album, in the same way that people call the Beatles' self-titled album the White Album, would become the band's best-selling record ever, and it was the band's first album to go number one. The Black Album is one of the best-selling albums worldwide, with more than 16 million copies sold. And here's an interesting fact. The album also became the second-longest charting traditional title in history and the second to spend 550 weeks on the album charts. I think that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is the first one, but I could be wrong. Now, speaking of the White Album, I always thought that the Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 records were the result of Guns N' Roses trying to create their own White Album. If you're familiar with these records, it makes sense. The White Album and the Illusions records are very similar in the sense that both seem to be just a huge, limitless, unchecked catch-all of material, regardless of genre, style, or even quality, really. And they were both made amid a band's collapse. Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 were two separate records with separate material, unified by the same artwork, just with different coloring. They were both released on the same day, right at midnight on September 17, 1991. And it's been said that within two hours, 500,000 copies of the records were sold. The records contained a total of 30 songs between them, and there's some disagreements in terms of how many songs and albums should be released. Some members of the band didn't like the idea of releasing so much of it, worrying that kids wouldn't shell out for a quadruple album or even a double album. But Guns N' Roses singer Axl Rose wanted to do something no one else had ever done, release two albums simultaneously and have them occupy the top two positions of the Billboard charts. And they did. So back in 1990, Guns N' Roses started to make their way back to the studio to record these records amid the dark drug and alcohol clouds hanging over the band, some more than others. Drummer Steven Adler was fired at one point over his drug use, but was brought back into the band after he signed a contract forbidding him to use drugs any longer. You can probably guess what happened next. During the recording session of Civil War, 
Adler could barely play, blaming opiate blockers he was taking for his addiction to heroin and alcohol for his inability to perform. And during this session, the band had to do more than 25 takes of Civil War as a result. So, he was let go from the band in July of 1990, and he would later file a lawsuit against Guns N' Roses for his dismissal. Among the drummer's guns considered to replace him was Martin Chambers of the Pretenders. That would have been pretty cool. Instead, they settled on Matt Sorum, who had been playing with the cult at the time. Slash said that Sorum actually saved Guns N' Roses from breaking up during that period, but not everybody in the band was in favor of the change. Izzy Stradlin, who was the band's rhythm guitar player, said much later that Adler's sense of swing and playing slightly ahead and behind the beat was what gave Guns N' Roses songs their vibe. He said he had noticed this when Adler had to be replaced temporarily by Cinderella drummer Fred Curry after breaking his hand, going on to say that even though Corey was a great drummer, technically sound and steady, the difference was significant and that the songs lost their feel as a result because they were written based on Adler's playing. Stradlin would have preferred to keep Adler in the band, but Guns N' Roses had already been off for two years and something had to be done. A lot of the songs featured on the Illusions records had already been written way back before Appetite for Destruction came out in 1987. Songs like Back Off Bitch, Bad Obsession, The Garden, You Could Be Mine, Civil War, Don't Cry, and November Rain were all kicking around from the Appetite Sessions. Some of the songs were left off for obvious reasons, like Don't Cry and November Rain, based on concerns that the band's gritty image would be compromised if they were included on Appetite. Don't Cry is a ballad, one of the first songs ever written by the band, actually. I always liked that two versions of the song were released, one on each of the Illusions records. The version with the original lyrics was put on Use Your Illusion 1, and a version with alternate lyrics is one of the last tracks on Use Your Illusion 2. The music is the same on both songs, and only the vocal tracks are different, and even then, the choruses are the same, it's just the verses that differ. Quite a lot, actually. Both versions are based on a parting of ways between two people, with the original version offering mild encouragement and the alternate version being a little bit more cutting and dark. And if we're being really picky, you'll notice that the melody and meter of the two versions are also just slightly different. In addition to these two versions, a third version also exists, the one recorded during the Appetite Sessions back in 1986. Now, all versions were written about a girl named Monique Lewis, and if you ever wondered who inspired the tattooed face of a woman on Axl Rose's right bicep, she did. The tattoo is her. The initial story behind the song is actually really touching. Lewis was dating Izzy Stradlin, they broke up, and Axl Rose was in love with her. She and Rose were sitting on the steps of a club somewhere on the Sunset Strip, and she told Rose that they couldn't be together. She wanted to do other things, and he was crushed, and he began to cry, prompting Lewis to say, don't cry. And those of you who remember the video will know that Blind Melon singer Shannon Hoon, whose sister Anna was actually friends with Axl Rose back in their hometown of Lafayette, Indiana, 
sings on Don't Cry. His vocal is embedded a little bit deeper in the mix, but if you listen closely, you can hear him harmonizing in a much higher register than Axl Rose. Slash said in his autobiography that he loved the addition of Hoon's vocal track in the mix because it adds a soulful warmth to the song. Also in that video, you'll recall the semi-violent scene where Rose is fighting over a gun with then-girlfriend Stephanie Seymour. According to Rose, that scene was an intentional recreation of a real-life battle that he and former wife Erin Everly actually had. Rose had intended to shoot himself, and Everly wrestled the gun away from him before he could do it. Another ballad held back from the Appetite for Destruction sessions was November Rain. Rose had been developing the song since at least 1986. It goes back that far. An 18-minute version of it was recorded with Nazareth guitarist Manny Charlton back in 86, right before the Appetite Sessions got started. Rose was very proud of the song, and as such, very meticulous and very guarded about exactly how the song was to be recorded. And as a result, it took a little while to be completed. As it was being developed, Rose would play versions of it for select audiences. Rose showed up at a party in Hollywood in his brand new BMW convertible and played a cassette of the latest mix of the song from the car's tape deck for everybody at the party. If you listen to November Rain's drum track, you'll notice that the tom fills are exactly the same throughout the song. They're played the exact same way every time. Long after the song was released, drummer Matt Sorm complained about that claiming that Rose made him sit and listen to Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me while he pointed out exactly how he wanted the fill to be played. This sort of perfectionism was a constant through the entire recording process. The band had a lot of difficulty finishing the records, especially during the mixing process. According to Rolling Stone, after mixing 21 tracks with producer Bob Clearmountain, the band decided to scrap those mixes and start over fresh again with Sex Pistols engineer Bill Price. But the problems continued. Rose would like the mix, Slash didn't. And then Slash would like the mix, and Rose didn't. This went on and on, and because the record still wasn't completed when it came time for the band's 18-month world tour to start, the last bunch of songs were completed in various studios across America between tour dates. But of course, the records would ultimately be released, and in all, the Use Your Illusion records sold a combined 35 million copies worldwide. All right, that concludes our look at how hard rock and metal were able to withstand the rise of grunge in 1991 and all the other interesting stuff that happened too. What a year for music, 1991. Thanks for listening, folks. Reach out to me on social media, Instagram, Brent Jensen Music, Facebook, same, Real B. Jensen on Twitter, and my website is brentjensenmusic.com. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury, and I'm Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.